Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a show where we talk to people in and around the world of politics, commenting, analyzing, writing, but we don't talk about anything political whatsoever. We only talk about our guests, chosen band or musician. That's what we do here on Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff! You know, I'm kind of tired of this pointless, needless hostility from you, Scott. All right? You know, I, I deal with this every week. I get this attitude from you every week. And frankly, I'm getting a little fed up. And you know what? That goes for all you punks in the press, too. That want to start by printing lies instead of the things that I say on my podcast. That means you, Charlie Cook at National Review. That means you, Jonah Goldberg, writing syndicated columns for USA Today. Andrew Carell at the Daily Beast. Christopher Scalia. What, you angry because your dad wrote more precedents than you? You ripping off the kids while they're paying their hard-earned money to read about the bands they want to know about? Printing lies, starting controversy. You want to antagonize me, Scott? Antagonize me, Scott. Get in the ring, Scott, and I'll kick your bitchy little ass. Punk. And people who have no uh, knowledge of the somewhat deeper tracks in Guns N' Roses catalog are, 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 are very confused right now. Don't worry. We'll explain. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. I should also mention you can find the show on Twitter at Political underscore Beats, at Political underscore Beats, where I think we've cracked the 1,000 follower threshold there. Uh, and also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Most Mondays on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, right there at nationalreview.com. Go to the website and uh, click on podcast. You can listen, share, enjoy, and leave reviews as well of Political Beats. Our guest this week is uh, intimately uh, uh, knowledgeable about uh, what goes on at National Review. He works there. He is the deputy managing editor of National Review Online. And yes, you can find his writings too at nationalreview.com or on Twitter at R.A. Verbruggen. He is Robert Verbruggen. Robert, thanks for joining us here on Political Beats. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and we, uh, before we get to our band, we always like to find a little bit more about our guests and how they became involved in, uh, in what they're doing these days. Robert, being involved at a big old website, a great website, the finest website, because Charlie is listening, I think, uh, the <laughs> finest website known to mankind, nationalreview.com. Tell us how you got involved. Well, I actually went to journalism school. Um, I, I'd been planning to be a journalist for, for quite a while. By the time I, I ended up at National Review, um, I kind of kicked around some other publications. Uh, this is actually my second stint at National Review. I, I came there originally in t- 2008, worked there until 2013, and then came back about a year ago. Um, so it's just something I've always had a passion for, political journalism. And uh, mo- most of my work is, is editing rather than writing, but I also do some some writing on guns, some writing on health care, um, sort of the big policy topics as where I where I try to make my mark. And you can read that stuff uh, both on Twitter and at nationalreview.com. All right, Robert's chosen band this week, the one we spend the rest of our time really digging into, is, uh, my goodness, one of the biggest bands, perhaps the biggest band when you think about sales numbers, of the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, how to describe their sound? What, a, 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 a amalgam of hard rock and glam and a little bit of punk and they nearly caused riots across the country fans would wait sometimes hours for the lead singer to arrive and uh, as i mentioned just before we started this uh this podcast i think almost certainly hands down the most profane band that we've featured thus far 
on Political Beats. In this corner, weighing in at 850 pounds, is a band called Guns and Roses. And Robert, we first turn this over to you to uh, describe to us why you love Guns N' Roses, how you got into them, and why other people should care about this band. Great. Um, well, Guns N' Roses is actually a band that I associate with my childhood. It's one of a, a handful of hard rock bands that I started paying attention to when I was a little kid. Um, and I got into these groups mainly through my father. He had a, a you know pretty big record collection going all the way back to Beatles and Led Zeppelin, and he was still buying records and cassettes when I was a little kid. Um, and then one day when I was in probably first or second grade, uh, he came home with the Use Your Illusion albums. Um, and what I remember most about that um, is specifically the song Civil War, um, because if you'd been listening to sort of the, the music that was around yet, I think I think it could have kind of stood out to you, especially if you were a little kid. Um, you know, fans fans know this already, but it starts with this this movie excerpt from Cool Hand Luke. And then you've got whistling um, and then it builds up into this, this sort of uh, magical Guns N' Roses moment in the chorus where you have the really crunchy, heavy guitars and you have Axel, you know, wailing in that voice that you can't really quite describe, but it's just really <laughs> electrifying. Um, and then it builds up through the course of the song to this, you know, crazy solo at the end with Slash. And I was just instantly hooked. I, I just love the, the sound of it. I just I just love the band. Um, and as you can imagine, having a first or second grader who's hooked on Guns N' Roses is, is a little bit of a problem. Um, I may or may not have heard some profanity around the house when I was a kid, um, but my parents took seriously this idea that they were supposed to, you know, police what I was listening to and make sure I wasn't hearing bad words. So um, I went on this sort of seven or eight year quest to acquire gun, as much Guns N' Roses as I could without running into the parental advisory sticker. Um, so I would do stuff like uh, if we were on a camping trip and my brother and I were taking turns picking music, I would pick pick GNR and my dad would have to try to fast forward through the swear words, <laughs> which is pretty hard to do on Use Your Illusion 1 because they're, they're kind of spread out. So there was some sloppy uh, censorship on that one. Um, you know, I, I bought my dad uh, Appetite for Destruction and Lies uh, on the condition that I'd be able to tape the clean songs. I bought soundtracks. Um, I, I'd go through the bins at stores to see if I could find one with the sticker taken off of it. Um, <laughs> but, but just generally, it was just this... I was obsessed with this band and I couldn't really listen to them. So it was sort of a, a lure of the, um, of the profane or of the forbidden. Um, and you'd think that magic would wear off when I became older and I finally got the right to just listen to whatever I wanted to listen to. Um, but it really didn't. By the time I was a teenager, I was, I was playing guitar reasonably seriously and I started buying the, 
um, the tab uh, books where you can learn how to play the, the music. And I really just developed a much deeper appreciation for who they are as musicians and, and, and specifically Slash. He's easy, easily my favorite guitar player. And what, what I love about him is he has this sort of style that blends sort of blues and classical um, elements and it, uh, each solo he plays, it's you know, in the late 80s when Guns N' Roses was starting out, a lot of, you had a lot of these shredder-type guitarists who just sort of play fast for as long as they were allowed to, um, whereas he really makes each solo like a little composition in itself that sort of tells a story and has a whole lot of melody to it. Um, so that, that's how I got into Guns N' Roses, and you know, to this day, they're, they're one of the few bands um, I followed for you know, over decades, and I still put in you know, my, the, the best albums from my childhood. I mean, for me, Guns N' Roses again, and I, and I and I wonder if Scott will tell a similar tale to this. It is one that's kind of very similar to what Robert said. It was indeed a band of my childhood. I think Scott and I may be a little older than Robert. For me, uh, when I discovered Appetite for Destruction, this probably would have been in 1988. So what was like seven years old? My brother was eight years old, and so you know, again, the thrill of the uh, you know you're listening to this great like hard rock and music, and then you know you hear the songs like Sweet Child of Mine, oh, that's great. But then you hear like Welcome to the Jungle. You know, you're in the jungle, babe. You're going to die. And then you're like, ooh, this is dangerous music. And then by the time uh, Use Your Illusion came out, when I was about 11 years old, it came out on my birthday. I remember getting both <laughs> Use Your Illusions Volume 1 and 2 on September 17, 1991 for my birthday. It was a birthday gift for me. Um, uh, you know, this was the most ever-present band in the world, and I guess what I didn't realize is that it was all really kind of not going to last, because, you know, even at that time, when, when Use Your Illusion came out, Nirvana was, you know, already released their album. Pearl Jam had just put out 10. That whole hair metal thing that Guns N' Roses was sort of the, the peak of, and then you had these other bands that I kind of liked, too, that were like like Poison. Remember Poison? Remember Unskinny Bop? You remember <laughs> Warrant? She's My Cherry Pie? All that was about to get just completely blown away, swept away by the grunge revolution that was started by Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam. But man, at that time, they were everything to us as kids. And there was that that frisson of like listening to something that you weren't supposed to listen to. It kind of makes me feel like, geez, you know, your parents were better than mine because my <laughs> Mine never gave us any stick. Like my, my parents freaked out when we play ACDC at times. <laughs> Somehow, and and the NWA. Oh man, that was the one we really straight out of Compton was the way we really freaked our mom out. But we got away with Guns N' Roses for some reason. I don't, I don't know why it is. I think maybe it's just because that kind of rock milieu that they played in sounded more normal to um, you know uh, people like my dad, my mom, who had been brought up on that kind of rock music. But yeah, the thing about this band is that you have to ask yourself, well, okay, you know, we understand how important they are to you as a child. Does the music hold up? Does the discography hold up? Well, I mean, Guns N' Roses are such a tough question. Yeah, I think a lot of their greatest hits do hold up. But then again, you look at their, you know, their career arc and how it was so stunted and sort of held mm -hmm. back. Uh, by all of the ego wars, the, the weird indulgences, the inability to you know just buckle down and put out a damn album. Um, this is one of the weirdest major bands in history. Uh, for a band that everybody treats as like a major and important band, you go look at the very halting nature of Scott. Only like two real releases, uh, and then Chinese Democracy comes out. You know, twenty years later, what a was absolutely bizarre 
you know, history and, and a pattern of music making for a group that everyone other acknowledges as major. And I think that that's why Guns N' Roses still remains fascinating. We'll talk about the whole Chinese democracy story and what ended up resulting from it when we get there. But like, this is a band whose narrative in some ways to me is almost as compelling as the music they created and sometimes maybe even more so. And uh, a third similar story, that's where I'll start, is, uh, is, is that I remember receiving Appetite for Destruction for, I believe, a birthday. It might have been Christmas, but it was birthday or Christmas. I think it was my Uncle Joe who bought it for me. And I liked Guns N' Roses. I liked the singles on the radio. And I uh, got it on cassette, of course, and had it for a while. And at one point, I realized that my liner notes to Appetite for Destruction were missing. They were gone. And I was pretty, um, I was pretty, you know, regimented about where I kept my, my cassettes. They were alphabetized. I knew where they were. And so it was very odd for the liner notes to Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction to go missing. And I searched, and I searched, and I searched. And I will tell you guys, I never found the liner notes to Appetite for Destruction. My... My gut feeling, though I have never tried to confirm this with my parents, is that they um, allowed me to listen to some of the music, but some of the liner notes perhaps went a little too far. I am, yes, uh, uh, accusing, I suppose, my parents of absconding with my liner notes to the cassette of Appetite for Destruction. That is my best guess as to what happened to them, because I cannot figure out what happened. Um, and certainly, God, have you ever had this conversation with your parents? It sounds no. like you have issues. <laughs> you want to work out maybe with them? <laughs> it's been 30 years, and I wonder if they'd even remember if they actually did it. But uh, I think I still have the cassette somewhere, but no liner notes. I have no idea where they went. Uh, yeah, I, I was not as lucky as you. I, uh, yeah, I mentioned that I would used to go through the CD bins to see if I'd find a, a sticker that was the parental advisory sticker <laughs> off. I, uh, I bought a copy of Lies, and it lasted day or two before <laughs> the whole thing went man but i mean these guys were just absolutely massive uh and as jeff mentioned though they you know their output was relatively slim uh through some of those years and you know eventually overall but uh yes we'll get into the debut album in, in just a, a moment we we'll give you a, a little background first on where these bands come from um, Izzy Stradlin, the rhythm guitarist from the band, living with Tracy Guns from the band L.A. Guns, and, and Izzy was in a band called Hollywood Rose, and uh, L.A. Guns needed a new vocalist, so Izzy said, hey, check out this guy, Axl Rose. And so, that's Guns and Roses, the combination of L.A. Guns. There was actually a guy named Guns. Yeah. <laughs> With a guy that's named right. Rose, that's where the name comes from. Not not just the idea that they're cool images. Yep, Tracy Guns and 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 the name of the other band. So it was it was Axel and it was it was Izzy to, to start. And uh, Duff was quickly brought in to replace the bassist that they had inherited. And only a couple of months later, Slash came in and Stephen Adler came in to play drums. And uh, after I think only about three four months after they first got together, they had a completely reformed lineup under the Guns N' Roses name. And so they were big, along with all those L.A. bands on the uh, on the Hollywood club scene. They attracted a lot of attention. They got some major label offers from uh, Chrysalis Records and also from Geffen Records. And Geffen said, hey, guys, you do what you want. We're giving you a complete creative license, which, 
you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea uh, in the whole Chinese democracy saga. But at the time, wait, why? You know why they had to do that? Because Geffen was in such a bad place reputationally at that point. Because mm-hmm. this is right around the time that they had sued Neil Young. Yes. Or uh, not for quote making uncommercial records or unrepresentative, right? Right, and so this is you know Neil Young is in his like making bizarre like you know techno and country music records where he's he's purposefully uncommercial. He gets sued by Geffen, and Geffen immediately just takes a huge hit among like you know up and coming bands. No one wants to sign for them, uh, so Geffen you know has to basically give the keys to the kingdom away to Guns N' Roses in order to get them onto that label. And uh, boy, they would end up paying and paying. Yes, and they paying would. Paying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like taking a bad loan. They'd, they'd be paying for that for an awfully long long time uh so they signed guns and roses signed with geffen in, in in early 1986 by the end of the year you have a, an ep come out which is called live like a suicide but is not live at all it's piped in you know crowd noise and we'll talk about that as we get to lies because it was reissued uh on the lies uh ep a couple of years later uh by the beginning of or by the end of uh, 86 is when that came out and then middle of 1987, middle of 1987 is when the debut album Appetite for Destruction is released and, uh, of course, changes the future of trivia questions for all time. Because before this, the, the answer to the trivia question, the best-selling debut album of all time, guys, was... Jesus, I don't know. What is it? <laughs> the, is it, is it it's not Meet the Beatles? I mean, something like that? What no, is it? Before Appetite for Destruction, the best-selling debut album of all time was from this band out of Boston. Called Boston. Called Boston. And Appetite for Destruction shattered uh, that record, shattered the record of selling records. More than 30 million copies moved eventually of Appetite for Destruction for a debut album. Absolutely unbelievable. And so that's... Let's point out, this is in a nation where I think they only there's only 300 million people in the United States in 19, 1987 or thereabouts, which sure. means that <laughs> one out of 30 people in the country at least had a copy of this, which is shocking. Yes. <laughs> amazing penetration. Everyone owned Appetite. And everyone knew uh, the songs, uh, including Sweet Child of Mine and Welcome to the Jungle, but... As we dig into this debut album, I want to hand it off to our guest, Robert Verbruggen, to tell us his thoughts, his experience with this enormously successful and, uh, and, and you know, I was going to say influential, and I'm not sure, maybe we can talk about that. How influential was this first album when you have Nirvana busting through the gates in just a couple of years? But we'll throw it to Robert first. Robert, on Appetite for Destruction. Well, to me, the the thing that stands out among the rest of the albums that they put out is just how perfectly straightforward it is as an album. It's you know two guitars, axle, bass, drums, and that's it. And one one thing I was actually surprised to learn a while back is that they actually had November Rain at this time. Mm-hmm. Axel was always has always been into writing songs on piano, but they kept all of that out. It's just a very straightforward hard rock album that you know, sort of melts together, as you said, during the intro, all these you know, punk and metal and glam influences um, and just does it with such amazing songs that you can't, uh, you can't ignore it. Um, and, and with a guitar tone that's just unstoppable, um, uh, 
interesting piece of backstory there is that um, the guitar amp that Slash used on the album, they had rented, um, and they intended to just keep it and pay the rental company for it, but somebody took it back and they were never able to track it down. So the, <laughs> the, the sound on this album is is actually just lost. They, they could never recreate it perfectly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a great album. It's one of those albums that you can put on and listen to it straight through front to back, you know, no filler just a lot of just really hard rocking songs. And then of course, Sweet Child of Mine, you know, one of Slash's best guitar solos. Um, I, I do find the song a little bit cheesy, the, the song itself, most of it, honestly, <laughs> um, but it was really what put them on the map. Between that and Welcome to the Jungle, just an amazing hard rock record. And if you wanted to talk about influence, um, it's obviously true that the style of music went out, but I think there's always been a place for this sort of straightforward, as long as it isn't over the top cheesy, like the the hair metal acts that were coming out then. I think there's, mm-hmm. there is a difference between something like Rat or Poison and, and something like Guns N' Roses. Um, just 10 years later, you had Buck Cherry come out with a fairly similar yes. record that sold really well and yeah. that people liked. Um, so I, I think they, they, they carved out a niche that that exists to this day, even if it's not influencing you know the, the number one hits of today. This album... Obviously, I owned it when I was young. I, you know, I probably haven't listened to it in a while. I, I, of course, I listen to it as we get close to recording the podcast. And one thing just jumped out at me immediately, and that is, I hear just an, I mean, it's not a surprise to people, perhaps. I just hear an enormous amount of Aerosmith influence on this album, and you know, there's the L.A. scene and, and the Hollywood clubs, and there's a lot of, there's certainly some hair metal aspects where they kind of drifted off course to create a heavier sound but man i hear joe perry's guitar uh you know stephen tyler's vocals the the dual guitar of you know uh whitford and and, and perry and and, and izzy and, and slash I just hear so much of aerosmith uh on this album and that would change i think quite a bit by the time they got to use use your illusion uh at least in terms of where some of those influence were, influences were coming from but front to back, man, this is a tough album to be. I think it still holds up very, very well uh, f- from the standpoint of creating a a, a a rock album that is that is clearly a classic. I mean, welcome to the jungle, guys. the 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 ability of of lyrics to match the music is just superb. And the first ten seconds, when you hear you know Axel uttering, "Oh my God!" just before. You know, Adler comes in with his drums, and then that 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 siren scream, that you know, the ambulance siren scream that Axel kicks off the song with. You are sucked in immediately to this world of what darkness and danger.
and, and the video does a good job of accurately kind of representing uh, what what the song's about. This this hayseed from Indiana, Axl Rose, getting off a bus right onto you know almost Skid Row, and uh, and his transformation through the course of the song. You know, this is not a uh, a rock and roll is awesome fun. This is a is rock and roll is not a bunch of games. Rock and roll can be dirty and 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 disgusting and dark um and that and that breakdown section you know where they kind of uh have the uh, uh, like like freddy krueger's nails on a boiler that that the screech of the guitar every portion of welcome to the jungle works so well and of course that 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 cold close or axel just grunts out it's gonna bring you down is the perfect close to the song and a perfect album opener for appetite for destruction um where else we want to go uh, oh you know mr brownstone those riffs there are massive and fantastic with izzy and, and slash and we'll probably talk about this in a little bit because izzy stradlin's not long for the guns and roses world man he wrote a lot of these early songs or at least contributed giant portions to these early songs and he was a main main you know when he left it wasn't just a rhythm guitarist it was a main songwriter uh for the band uh, Mr. Brownstone, this bleak, well, I, I was going to say realistic, although I, I can't say I've had any actual uh, experience with heroin, um, but I, what I imagine to be a realistic interpretation of what it's like to be addicted, uh, you know, used to do a little, little wouldn't do, little got more and more, um, wish I never met her, and again, the very end, when Axel just shouts out, yowza, I don't <laughs> know why that works so well, but it does. You know, I've never been a huge Sweet Child of Mine fan. I mean, it was an unavoidable hit. My favorite little thing I learned in the process of doing the prep here is this is this is Guns N' Roses' version of Life in the Fast Lane. If you listen to our Eagles episode, you know that Life in the Fast Lane from the Eagles began with Joe Walsh in the studio just doing some finger exercises on his guitar. And Henley and Fry said, that's great. That's, let's build a song around that. Sweet Child of Mine is just Axel doing those that you know that that main riff at the start of the song those are that's just Axel doing his or that's a Axel slash doing his finger exercises as they're warming up in the studio and I think it was Duff and Axel said you know that's great we're gonna write a song around that same deal just it was just playing around in the studio with with slash warming up that became you know perhaps their best known hit some of the album tracks here, great. It's so easy, which actually was the first single. We think of the, all the other ones. It's so easy was the first single from the album. Actually, uh, I like "Out to Get Me," which is a little, almost a little too hairy, glammy for me, but it is, it's right on that line. And uh, uh, what? Uh, well, Paradise City, of course, too. I forgot Paradise City has a synthesizer on it. That's how how good it is. And if you listen closely to the Paradise City and some other songs on on Appetite for Destruction, you'll notice. That guitar work 
is pretty intricate. I mean, it's not just this kind of wall of noise. Slash and Izzy are actually have, they've actually worked out their parts pretty intricately and well planned. And even on a song like Paradise City, where the main riff is so like this thunderingly obvious, some of the guitar work during the uh, the verses is really intricate and well planned and 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 well suits the song. <laughs> There's an, an actual real clunker on the album, front to back. It's outstanding. Well, I mean, there's always anything goes. Which you know, every time I, I look at it now, I kind of <laughs> wish it was the show tune from Broadway. You know, anything goes. Mm-hmm. And here's a little finger finger popping from the. <laughs> now, maybe that would have been a little out of character. But okay, here's the thing. I have two different ways of viewing this album, and of course. Then the first way that I view it is through my memories, it, through through experiencing it as I did as a child. And, you know, the, it's obviously a bit of a blur now, but the overwhelming rush is just like, wow, wow, what a powerful record. Everything is great. It's so dark. I, I kind of try to remember what it was that seized you about it. Um, and the other way of looking at it is, is on an analytical level. And, and, you know, when you analyze it, when you, when you look at it from, you know, a retrospective view, you got to ask yourself, why, why this? Why was Appetite bigger than every other hair metal, every other metal album as a debut album, no less, for a band that didn't have a reputation? You know, why was this the one that became the best-selling album of all time? And there are, I think, a bunch of reasons. I think one of them, obviously, the obvious one is the songwriting. Just on a blunt level, this is a well-written album. These are great rock songs. They're rock songs with basic classic verities. As, as Scott said, yeah, it sounds a lot like Aerosmith. But it's worth pointing out that it sounds like good Aerosmith. Yes. <laughs> all right? No, I mean, this is, you know, this is during the era where Aerosmith had just disappeared you know they were right. they were no longer on the scene they'd come back later on with Pump the revival that they had on Pump I think was in large part driven by interest in them that was rekindled through the success of Guns N' Roses I might point out you know Permanent Vacation they'd kind of already kind of done something but no that was really when they started making their comeback um, but yeah this sounds like Rock's era uh, Aerosmith or Toys in the Attic or something like that you know Get Your Wings good Aerosmith mm-hmm. those are solidly well written songs um but you know i've never been the world's biggest aerosmith fan i find a lot of their songs you know are kind of competent rock but they lack ambition they lack interest there's something more to this and i think that the something more that you get out of guns and roses is the theater this is theatrical music and it's a way that this is not something that's usually appreciated about the band you know we talk about them as hair metal but we forget you know the hair metal is you know it's a glammy kind of a glitzy thing Guns N' Roses were theatrical in that different way Scott kind of got at some of them talking about welcome to the jungle out you know it's like again the video Axel getting off the bus these Pudnucker from Lafayette Indiana you know Bill Bailey comes to Los Angeles and suddenly you know eventually becomes this you know this you know down and dirty you know street rat rock star that's what this album sounded like it actually painted a 
very visual picture. He, even to me, like back when I was like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I didn't really understand girls. Certainly didn't understand drugs. <laughs> I understood that there were forbidden things out there. I understood that there was danger, and this was a very vivid and theatrical version of it, and in a way that 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 again skirts that line between being, um, you know, sort of you. Know, chintzy and exploitative and feeling real mr brownstone great example that's about i think slash and, and, and izzy wrote that about like you know the fact that they're just sitting around in their in their apartment you know like complaining about how how much it sucked to be a heroin addict <laughs> which is what they were <laughs> so like, it was a dancing with mr brownstone um and you know even songs like night train which i when i was you know nine years old did i know that that was written about like cheap booze no <laughs> i didn't all i knew is that it was written about people doing like you know kind of really skeezy things obviously partying this is a place where something bad or you know something very kind of like you know some, some very sketchy things could happen and i was gripped by the danger I could not get past the power of the riffage, too. That's the other thing you've got to talk about when you talk about Appetite. This is just an album that is full of really well-constructed guitar riffs. And the thing that surprises me the most when I come back to it and actually look at these things is the point that Scott made, is that you think at Guns N' Roses is Axel. You think it's Slash. Guns N' Roses is more than them. A huge part of Guns N' Roses was Izzy Stradlin. That guy was a fan effing fantastic songwriter and you know he's responsible for mr brownstone he's responsible for paradise city for my michelle he played a big role in a sweet child of mine is slash but you're crazy i think that one's one that he plays a role in at rocket queen mm -hmm. which is another which is the last song of the album i love rocket queen it's a great song there is this album perfect no and you know i think one of the funny things about it is that i you know, sweet child of mine is is a song that that drags on me at this point you know, uh, because I, I um, you know, I, I love the opening pentatonic riff from that. But, you know, when it gets into the where do you go, where do you go now, where do you go, all that stuff. And finally, I suddenly think, well, this, this song is too long. This song goes on for too long. <laughs> um, you know, it, it goes on and it never kind of recapitulates. But beyond that, yeah, it, it's, it's a good album. It's, it's more than a good album. It's a great album. And the thing about it is it's also as brief as they would ever get. <laughs> because yes. believe it or not, at 53 minutes or whatever. <laughs> 
or 47 minutes or whatever the length. Yeah, it's 53 minutes or yeah. something like that. Uh, this is as short as Guns N' Roses would ever get on any of their main studio releases. Uh, one thing you were about to learn about this band is that they never did half measures on anything, and they were the most self-indulgent band of all time, which I guess takes us to the problem of how was Guns N' Roses going to follow this up? It's uh, the, the thing that's worth pointing about Appetite is that it came out in 1987, but it actually didn't hit big until a year later. It right. took... It took years and years for this thing to like sort of build up its momentum. And they went, was I was old. just looking at the Wikipedia page, by the way. They, they went a year between releasing singles on that album. Can you fathom that today? They, they released, I think, Sweet Child of Mine was the second single and let that work for a year. Or maybe it was Welcome to the Jungle. But either way, they, they went a year before between releasing singles on that album. Yeah, because the, they, they, they literally, it was one of these things that spread by word of mouth. And I can't even, of course, I can't remember where it was that I, you know, came in on this this spectrum, how late it was. Probably was one of the later people to follow, to find out about Guns N' Roses because I was a kid at that time. But 1988 is when it became a number one hit album. This is an album that was recorded in 1985 and 1986. So the question was, when it finally breaks big, they've been touring their butts off. What do they do? What do they do to follow it up? Well, the answer is they don't really know what they can do to follow it up. Um, and they know they want to do something really big, some massive statements. So what do they do? Uh, they, they, they do the classic marking time thing. They, they put together a compilation album, some, some, some acoustic sessions and, and an EP, an old EP. And that, that brings us to the question of Guns and GNR Lies, Guns and Roses Lies. Is this an album? Is this a compilation? It's just, it's just a piece of crap. Who wants to talk about lies? Go ahead, Robert. I <laughs> uh, just about said not it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I see it as sort of th two EPs thrown together. Um, the the first side is just a re-release of uh, Live Like a Suicide. Um, you know, with the fake. It's a studio album, but it's fake fake live noise inserted over it um these are songs that they did before you know appetite you know none of them particularly high in quality you can see why they didn't they didn't put them on their main album um it's it's one of those things where it's sort of cool to have because you you know they let people see what they'd been up to beforehand but it's nothing i don't think that anyone bought um for for, for that reason um but the side two is what where it gets uh the the new material uh, mostly acoustic um i mean i guess i can just go through all, all four all four of the songs um you know, first you've got patience um it, it's a radio hit you'll see you'll hear it on the radio to this day um but it's an acoustic song it's kind of slow there's nothing I, I don't think there's anything that grabs you anywhere near as much as as appetite for destruction grabs you it's a little bit a little bit on the boring side um then comes used to love her sort of a joke song about uh, killing your wife um which you know obviously had there was some controversy um yeah not not um you know poor, poor taste uh, a poor taste sort of song um and and then you have a new version of you're crazy which was a song for um that was originally released on appetite but it's a slowed down version um that's uh, still electric but uh more resembles the acoustic version that they'd been playing at the time and then at the end of the album you have this just horrifyingly bigoted track called one in a million um where it's basically uh, are take, the, the lyrics are written from the standpoint of a you know white racist, um, and it uses homophobic and and, and racial slurs. No, and, the, the lyrics are written from the standpoint of one William Axel Rose. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> he had the out. He had the out. I always wonder why he didn't take it. Where he's like, you know, I'm writing in a character, you know. Right. But no, in the interviews, he's all like, well, "This is how I feel. I, I don't like homosexuals. <laughs> it's so bad." 
Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you, Robert. I do that. Oh, no, no. I mean, uh, it, I mean, I, I got I mean, I, I was looking back over this because I have you know, this all happened when I was a really little kid. So I wasn't following the interviews as they were happening or anything like that. Um, but it seemed to me like he, he said a different thing every time he talked to somebody. Sometimes it would be, you know, I don't believe in having any restrictions on the words I use. So as an artist, I wanted to say this word. Other times he was saying, you know, there were, there were specific people who had irritated me and I, you know, I wrote it out of anger directed at those spe specific people that, you know, of course, is not how racial slurs work. Uh, you, you don't use them to insult a specific person. When you use them, you're, you're insulting an entire, entire group of people. That's that's the problem with them. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a really bad uh, episode in, in Guns N' Roses history. And that's embarrassing. And, and they're embarrassed by it. Um, and what I found interesting about the the new re reissue of appetite for destruction is on the extended version of appetite um they have gnr lies in it's entirely but it's just missing the song and no no comment whatsoever hmm. about why they took it off or, or what they were thinking at the time um you know and, and it's yeah I, I don't know what more to say about it it was just a really um frustrating and stupid thing to do and i don't understand why my understanding of it is that axel rose was the one who pushed for it and the other guys in the band were yeah. not fans of it <laughs> um but let him do it um slash himself of course is, is biracial himself so i, I it's it, I, i'm kind of curious how it happened and why why the rest of the band let it happen if they had a problem with it or, or what what they were thinking they make no sense to me Here's the really uncomfortable thing about GNR Lies, which is that One in a Million is clearly the best song on the album in a musical sense. And that's the thing that makes it so frustrating is that you put a different set of lyrics onto that song and people are going to, that's on every greatest hits album they have ever done. That's going to be a, a universally celebrated song that gets played on the radio because the music to that is really good. Mm -hmm. The performance of that is really good. The arrangement, clearly the rest of the band put effort into it. Slash has this like really clever, really nice, crisp acoustic guitar solo. You know, the percussion is kind of like a nice little shaker bass thing and then you have those lyrics and it's just a, it's just an effing disaster um and it's it's one of those things where like i remember this so well as a kid that you know this was one of those songs where like my brother and i would listen to this and kind of like you know sort of snigger because we knew that like you know like ha 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 we're listening to this person say these terrible things we knew then that it was wrong but it was like the way kids behave that <clears throat> when you hear something forbidden and, and 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 that you know is bad that you shouldn't be doing it's the it's the it's the thrill of rebellion it's a childish feeling though and that's what this is this is childish this is almost feels like the way you know trolling behavior works on the internet these days oh i'm going to say all these offensive things aren't you offended well i guess it's your fault for getting offended you should know better than to be offended but no that's that's the way immature people behave and so that's the problem with one in a million that they they they, they 
they took a pretty good melody and a really great band performance and they stapled it just to the most unacceptable and indefensible series of lyrics that Axl Rose ever wrote. And the other problem is that the rest of this album is just not worth it. I mean, that, that first EP, the uh, Live Like a Suicide EP, um, it's not bad, actually, but it's nothing special. It kind of reminds me of most bands' first EPs before they, they put out their albums. It's you know a bunch of stuff that was dashed off, a couple covers, a couple of you know half-assed originals. Uh, the fake audience applause is an interesting twist, but beyond that, it's not really you know that interesting. It certainly isn't up to the level that uh, you know uh, that Appetite for Destruction would release uh, would reach. And the rest of the acoustic material is just not that good. I think Patience is terrible. Patience. I can't believe it. I, this is one of those songs where I went back to listen to it again it, just this week when we were doing the show. And I remember, I was like, oh, yeah, that was famous. I remember liking that song as a kid. And I was just like, this song sucks. What is it that I ever heard in this song back when I was young? It's just bad. It's maudlin. It's poorly written. There isn't any good melodic ideas. It's just a crappy song. Um, ironically enough, you know, You're Crazy is the best thing on that on that acoustic side because you know even though it, it, it's a retread of a song that was on appetite i really do like that kind of snappy acoustic f- shuffle that they put into it it's a pretty worthy rearrangement and they do take it in a different direction it's not just an acoustic version of the same song on appetite they change up the arrangement i like it it's one of those ones that i'm willing to defend off the sound there's not a lot else that i can defend on. There's only eight songs here, so I mean, you guys covered a whole lot of it. I will say from the from the from the first half, I think "Move to the City" is a decent song. It's a it's a it's, it's an easy written song. It's some swing to it, some horns. Uh, I think Duff's bass rumbles nicely in the background. Uh, that, that's an okay song. You said all that needs to be said about uh, one in a million. Um, you know, used to love her has a country boogie to it that I don't mind. Musically, it's not the most interesting thing in the world and, and lyrically you know robert mentioned some of the misogynistic aspects i would be willing i would be almost willing to defend the song as being a you know as you guys were mentioning like written in character or kind of a a broad um you know i'm, I'm thinking like like faraway eyes from from the stones like jaggers and such that such an exaggerated you know southern sort of point of view to take the song as clearly kind of a wink and a nod you know had to put her six feet under still can hear her complain that sort of thing I used to love her
that that argument would be far easier to make if not for the fact that the very next song is one in a million in which these things are just sort of taken at face value those 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 lyrics from from axel so you know jeff's right musically one in a million is most interesting perhaps i think used to love her is not a terrible song either and again i think it would be far more defensible <laughs> if not for other things around it uh on the album um and this was i mean it sold again 10 million copies they could have put out virtually anything and kind of almost did put out virtually anything and and have it sell uh, in the double digit millions of albums but it was all guys just a big holding pattern for what was around the corner uh the, these back to, not back to back these simultaneously released albums no one does this anymore right i mean you had lucky town and human touch from bruce springsteen you had two guns and roses albums and released on the same day use your illusion one use your illusion two both released in 1991 and i think guys if i'm not wrong the first we heard from this album was the uh was the song from terminator 2 uh, yeah, it was you could be mine i'm could pretty be sure mine. Right? i think that was released kind of far ahead of the album and it wasn't even on the Terminator 2 soundtrack, if I recall. You had to actually buy User Illusion if you wanted to have You Could Be Mine. Do you want to take these separately? Break them up into oh, one and two? Yeah, listen, listen okay. You know, after after you know, they, they released Appetite in 1986, five years later, they come out with their next actual album. And what is it? It's, what is it? it's 160 flipping oh, minutes goodness. of music. It's almost three hours. <laughs> Three hours of music. Um, I think the only thing that makes sense is to talk about them is Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I don't know if it's possible. This is not like melancholy and the infinite sadness, <laughs> you know, like where there's like, you know, a conceit that unifies everything from dusk till dawn. Or, nah, this is just two records. And, and, and I actually think that one of them is significantly better than the other. So why don't we start with Use Your Illusion 1, which I will say... I think is the better of the two records. And of course, Scott and I actually had a conversation about this, uh, you know, before the show happened yesterday, where all my life I've been raised to believe that Use Your Illusion 2 is the better <laughs> of the records. And that's what everyone's told me. Every time I sort of read somebody talking about it, they're like, well, yeah, you know, Use Your Illusion 2, that's the better one. Um, I think Use Your Illusion 1 is very obviously the better of these two records neither of which are perfect both of which have some filler some hilarious filler some actually filler that that's 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 so bad that i don't even mind it because it reminds me of all the glorious cocaine fueled excess (laughs) los angeles rock stars must have been getting up to in 1991 but use your illusion one for me is the better record it has a lot of these sort of quieter tracks that, that people don't talk about that that i don't know remind me of the faces one of my kind of favorite, most underrated bands of all time. Uh, very bluesy stuff, like um, you know, not only Rednecks. <laughs> I'll tell a story about that in a second. <laughs> you ain't the first. I really love. That's an Izzy song. Izzy Stradlin was writing these great tunes, and he never was really really appreciated for them. And then Bad Obsession, which is another Izzy song. The back to back. That stuff could definitely be Ron Wood and Rod Stewart on the faces on, on an album like a not as good as a wink or ooh la la i really like that stuff and the only other thing i'll say before i let you guys talk about use your illusion one is that when we bought it uh my brother uh, it was there got i got them for my birthday but i took use your illusion two my brother took use your illusion one of course we fought with each other so chris wouldn't let me look at the, the cd as he played it he's like no you don't get to see it he would hold on to the liner notes because you know that's the way brothers are especially when they're <laughs> he's the older brother he was punishing me so he put on the first song 
And I was absolutely convinced that this song was called Rednecks Go to Hell. And that it was kind of like Axl Rose's answer song to One in a Million, saying like, okay, now I'm going to insult these people to like show you that like I'm an equal opportunity offender. I seriously thought this as like an 11 year old. I really did. I made that connection. I was like, I really love this. Like, this is a really great song. Rednecks go to hell. And I, even to this day, I refuse to accept that the real name of it is right next door to hell. <laughs> I really love that song. That's a great song. And I think this is a really good album. This this one, I'm not even sure how I'm going to go at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the show here. But if I'm going to pick uh, you know, the other one that's going to make my top two records, this one has a very good chance of being there at the end. So this is a huge album. Both albums are huge albums just in terms of length. And there's a lot, uh, I don't want to say a lot, but you know, there, are, there are filler songs here and there. That said... When they're good, they're really good. Took a year to record six studios, two different mixes. Of course, this would mean nothing uh, next, you know, for the next uh, big album, Chinese Democracy, which would blow away those numbers. Uh, and there's also a change in personnel. Matt Sorum is in at drums, and Stephen Adler is out. And listening to the progression of the of the songs from Guns N' Roses, you know what? They, I think they miss Adler. Adler had a bit of swing to his playing, but Sorum doesn't. Sorum, I think, is a more powerful player. And that does suit a few of these songs better, but I think they miss a bit of what Adler brought to the table, his swing to some of these songs. Uh, Jeff already identified two of my favorite songs on Use Your Illusion 1, and that is You Ain't the First, which is an Izzy song, slide and acoustic guitar. And I think it's Izzy and Axel and Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon who all kind of contribute to the vocals. Uh, it's very much unlike anything else on either album, I think. It's a very laid-back, kind of almost countryish song. And I think right after that, Bad Obsession, which Jeff mentioned too, one of the few songs that really does have that swing that is not in, in, in some of those Sorm songs. Horns, very Joe Perry guitar song, very dirty kind of slide guitar work. Bad Obsession's a really good song.
One that I, I, I can't, you know, every now and then, I, I tell you, I like a song and I can't tell you exactly why. I've always liked Garden of Eden and it's nothing that's going to, you know, reshape the world of rock and roll. Axel's it's lyrics... It's a perfectly fine song. There's no need yeah. to defend that. I mean, Axel's lyrics are barely decipherable during some of the verses, but it's got this big sing-along chorus. It's, uh, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the, the rhythm really... Uh, is constant throughout. It's got a good pace to it. Yeah. Listen, Scott, if you're listening to Guns N' Roses for Axl Rose's lyrical insight, you're not going to find it. Uh, yeah. You're doing it wrong. This is a man <laughs> whose greatest philosophical statement in the entire history of Guns N' Roses is, what's so civil about war? Yes. Anyway, so <laughs> let's focus on the music. Uh, Dust and Bones, which is early on in the album, is, 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 an, is a good one too. Very grimy and greasy sound to it. The guitars are very nice. I'll tell you, you know, there are these epically long songs, which I guess you have to have when you put 75 minutes of music on each disc. And I will say the the epically long songs on this first disc have never been my favorites. I've never liked Coma all that much. And I've never liked November Rain all that much. Um, that that kind of symphonic uh, symphonic ballad that Axel had been working on, as Robert said, since like back in 1983. Um, neither one of them ever have really lit it up for me. That said, the other highs, you know, uh, the high points on User Illusion One. Uh, you know, I had actually never, <laughs> I had always thought that User Illusion One was the more highly regarded of these two albums. I, I had not considered that two might be kind of in the same category. I think one is is clearly superior to two for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, so I had never even thought that two was, was considered better by other Guns N' Roses fans out there. I guess we can ask Robert his thoughts. Is one better than two? Do you place it above the second one? No, I do not. I, I'm a I'm a two guy to the bone. Um, to me, the, the problem with one, it, it's more stylistically varied. And that, that's something that, that can be a, a good thing. But I, I'm not sure they pull a lot of this stuff off. I, I'm actually not a big fan of You Ain't the First. It just sort of interrupts the album. Um, for me, it just the album just sort of comes to a stop. Um, and, and another thing they do on this one is, is they do some of the heaviest songs they've ever done. So you've got You Write the Next Door to Hell is one of them, Perfect Crime, Garden of Eden. And to me, they're just not, when they're in that sort of hyperspeed mode, I don't think they have the same magic that they have uh, elsewhere. Um, and, and I'm actually... I'm just going to disagree with the other thing you said, too, because I'm actually a huge fan of the the really long... Um, sort of melodramatic songs they have on here coma is one of my favorite songs that they ever put together um just because it is so epic i think it it, it tops the 10 minute mark and has all, all these different parts um going on um and especially the last probably two or three minutes of it that they, they have that big sort of crescendo at the end um you know, with with what i think is some of axel's best lyrics um really does it for me Yeah. 
and I'm also a big fan of uh, the Garden and November Rain. Um, so, so I disagree with you that 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 one is better than two, and I disagree with you about what's good about one. Man, I, I mean, Coma to me is one of those songs that is so bad that it's good. Coma is the Ed Wood film of Guns N' Roses songs, where like you know, by the time it gets to the you know to the uh, sound effects of the ER doctor saying like you know, hey, we're losing him, he's fading away, you know, like like, and I and I'm listening, and it's like they thought this was a good idea. They thought this was we're eight and a half minutes into the song, and they're actually doing it like a radio play for me about a guy dying of a drug overdose in a coma. <laughs> I, I, I'm both shaking my head and I'm laughing because it's just so funny. It's so overwrought. It, coma is not a good song, and you know my criticism of it is that there's no real. Mal- it's got one idea. It's got that that sort of bass guitar unison driven riff, mm-hmm. right? That is, it is pretty memorable, right? You know, everybody who's heard it remembers it, but that's the only thing going on in the song, all right? And so what do they do? That's why they have to, like, put in that, like, okay, now we're going to add the defibrillator sound, you know? <laughs> I think they actually got a real defibrillator. They did. yeah, uh, yeah. They, 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 I mean, who knows? That was a million dollars down the drain just to tape that. You get, you know, do it justice. <laughs> but they, they taped all that stuff, and it, it's gloss to cover a lack of actual ideas and the thing the the reason i mentioned this in detail is that i contrast it with another song that i've had a love and hate relationship over the years but i'm back to kind of loving now and that's november rain hmm. which is i'm surprised we haven't really talked about november rain everybody remembers november rain you could not have been a sentient human being who paid attention to music in the years 1991 <laughs> 1992 or thereabouts and not seen the music video for november rain complete with you know axel rose marrying stephanie seymour and slash walking out of the wedding service at the time uh to go play a guitar solo <laughs> outside a, a church in new mexico that was also used in the film Silverado, according to Wikipedia, which I find to be you know, like one of those funny details. And then the rain at the the wedding reception, where like for no reason that anybody has ever been able to properly explain to me, a guy trying to take shelter from a rain decides to do a football dive right through the wedding cake, the seven tier wedding cake, and destroy it. And all of this is happening to the you know to the accompaniment of strings and you know. Like, you know, singing girls, and you know, they keep cutting back to like Guns N' Roses performing at a concert hall. Axl Rose is at the piano. He's wearing his red bandana. Oh man, his hair is so long. His hair has gotten just so good in the back. He's got those blue John Lennon sunglasses. He is so sensitive. This is Axl Rose at his most sensitive moment. It's every single wonderful hair metal, hard rock cliche boiled into one nine and a half minute moment of indulgence. And I used to love it as a kid, and then I decided that. That I hated it as a more austere kind of, you know, back to basics rock and, and art rock loving kid got man, you know, when I got more mature. And now that I'm in my old age and in my dotage, you know what? November Rain is great. It's just so dumb and fun. And the actual melody behind it, you know, it has power. And that little, like, you know, piano recapitulation that, that goes behind it, you know, at the end when, you know, Axel just starts, you know, just comping on, on the low end, that has power. And the other thing that has power is that this is, I'm going to say it, this is going to sound like a cliche, this is slashing this guitar solo with Guns N' Roses. It's a well-constructed guitar solo. There's no flash. It's just a melodically smart, well-constructed guitar solo. And I listened to it again 
you know, several times this week. And I found myself thinking, you know, knowing what I know now, I can go back on this and say, yeah, you know, this, there's no reason that this should have been nine minutes. This should have been one sixth of an hour. That's a billable hour that I'd use to listen to November Rain instead of making my client <laughs> my work. I'm glad that I heard it, and I'm really glad that it exists as a monument to a time that will never return. We are never going to live in a world where a song like November Rain could be made ever again. And I'm just so glad that we have that video and the song to look back on. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one of the things that I really appreciate about going back to do this episode. It reconnected me with uh, the weirdness, the sort of liminal transitional weirdness of the early 90s, you know, as we started sloughing off the excesses of the 80s and moving into the, the sort of austerity of the nine of, of the grunge era and november rain is the last hurrah for all of that silliness and, and there's a you know a cinematic scope to this that i think jeff you mentioned earlier and actually i think becomes a little more uh evident both on two and and on uh chinese democracy later you know axel this was a big elton john fan um, and, and Queen and that sort of music and he, he brings a lot of that to the way these songs are constructed there's a there's there's a there's like a cinematic plot to them there's a beginning a middle and an end and there's conflict and there's all this happening in one song Axel Rose you know the guy who wrote you know about you know immigrants and the F word um, uh, talking about spreading diseases and one in a million is the man who who ended up inducting Elton John into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mm-hmm. a couple of years later. And in fact, they did a live performance. It was like the MTV Music Awards where Axel got Elton to play the piano line for November <laughs> Rain live with them. So his love of that kind of style of piano balladry is completely unfeigned and it's completely real, which again, you know, guy is like he's uh i don't know how do you describe him he's 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 the redneck with a with the soul of a a redneck poem <laughs> <laughs> political beats scott bertram jeff blair our guest robert verbruggen from uh, national review online where he's deputy managing editor you can find him on twitter at ra verbruggen we're talking about guns and roses remember to uh, find us on twitter too at political underscore beats and subscribe for new episodes we've moved through use your illusion one 
which means it's time to talk about Use Your Illusion 2. And since uh, since Robert already on the record saying that this is his favorite of the two, I say we gave him the floor first to make his his case on Use Your Illusion 2. Uh, I mean, part part of my love, I'll admit that I'm a little bit biased because, as I mentioned during the intro, Civil War was the the song that really got me into into Guns N' Roses to begin with. Um, but to me, it's just much more of a consistent album. It doesn't have these so many of the wild stylistic swings. Um, they kind of stick to what they're good at. <clears throat> um, to me, there are a few highlights on here, too, that I don't think a lot of people um, think back on so much unless they're really into the album and not just the songs that were on the radio. Um, to me, one of my favorite songs, uh, Guns N' Roses songs of all time, is Breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, it has uh, just amazing songwriting behind it. There's a sort of a funk aspect to it. Um, and then it, it, it goes into this really sort of bizarre um, thing toward the end where Axel's uh, reciting... Uh, um, some some sort of announcer and, and there's a amazing guitar solo from slash um just sort of fantastically weird but it, it also just works Um, and my, one of my you know, big favorites is Locomotive, um, you, another one of those really long songs um, with a lot of different things going on. Um, Best song on the album by far. Yeah, yeah great, great guitar riffs um, and, and this just really haunting conclusion to it that, that you might not see coming. Um, I, I, I just love that one. Um, and and I, I get made fun of for saying that Estranged is one of my uh, favorite Guns N' Roses songs, but it, but it is. It's a... The, the the guitar solo work on that is just incredible um i understand that the video uh, probably didn't do it any favors uh, we didn't have cable when i was i was a kid so <laughs> I, I missed the boat on the videos um but to me it's a, it's another one of those where it manages to you know, spread out and take up a lot of space on the album um but it does so in a way that's that's worth it and rewarding and, and that has a lot of great musicianship in it. Well, Okay, does anybody have any thoughts on Don't Cry? This is another one. This is, the, by the way, the funny thing about Use Your Illusion, both of them, is that the, the, there's so many songs on this that date all the way back to the earliest years yes. of Guns N' Roses. You know, uh, you know, Don't Cry, November Rain, Back Off Bitch, by the way. This is a song that my, my wife and I like to sing to one another a lot. <laughs> <laughs> figure, go figure. I don't know why. It's just, it's just funny, you know? Um, these songs all kind of come from the earliest years of the band. Yes. Massage, 
even that that god awful cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door. And by the way, I just got to point out, you know, our our, our friend Andrew Carell, who was the, you know, here for our, our last big mega episode spectacular on Bob Dylan, said this on the show that he considers that to be just an absolute travesty of a cover of Bob Dylan's original. And I got to agree right. with that. <laughs> oh, I can't bear it, you know. And it's the same thing that he, the same problem that he had with it is what I have with it, where Axel's like Knocking on Heaven's Door, wow, wow, yeah, 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 all these yeah, yeah, yeahs and whoa, whoa. I'm like, geez, this, this is a somber song about death. Why are you turning it into this this stupid like you know rock hair metal anthem? Why is everyone with their lighters out? Oh God, you can just see it right now as they're playing it somewhere in hell. Um, but I really like Guns N' Roses' version of "Live and Let Die." That's a really good cover. That's a really good cover of a song that I don't even really much care for in its original Paul McCartney version. Guns N' Roses were okay as a cover band, but they were better when they were writing, you know, I think profound philosophical statements like, you could be mine. With your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue, you get nothing done. You could be mine. Or, you know, Civil War, which, again, is one of those songs that my brother and I would just quote the opening lines from. I, we didn't realize it was from Cool Hand Luke. We just, just knew it was like a movie quote. And so we were like, what we got here is failure to communicate. For like three years, we would say this back and forth. And <laughs> Even as we were beating each other up. My, my brother would like, you know, like be like, you know, like taking my hand and forcing me to touch like hit myself the way like brothers do like you know why are you why are you punching yourself huh and then he's like well, you got failure to communicate um these are the kind of things the memories that you have and there's there's no memory more vivid than get in the ring i opened this show with a bizarre and seemingly incomprehensible mop <laughs> uh, uh ranting against all these former guests on our show but but what that really comes from is get in the ring which Another former guest of ours, Anthony Fisher, says is the uh, Fletcher Memorial Home, uh, you know, to, to Pink Floyd. Uh, the, the Fletcher Memorial Home off the final cut is what Get in the Ring is to Guns N' Roses on Use Your Illusion 2. Uh, a hysterical song where the authors, for no reason that anybody can quite understand, are so thin-skinned that they go after all of their enemies and work themselves up into a frothing rant that only makes them look stupider than the people they're going after. How do you think Andy Sesher of Hit Parader feels knowing that he has been immortalized in song, and that he will never do anything else that may matter in this world, but people are going to buy Use your illusion too, and know that him and Bob Guccione Jr. of Spin Magazine are going to be famous forever. <laughs> that song, uh, I loved it as a kid. My brother and I were convinced it was the most badass song ever written, and I listened to it again this week. And I just, I just, you, know, you can, you hold your head in your hands, and you're just like, my God, my God, uh, oh my God, I can't believe this exists. And yet, there's a part of me that still loves it. That goes for all you punks in the press that want to start shit by printing lines instead of the things we said. That means you, Andy Setcher, Hit Parader, Circus Magazine, Mick Wall at Kerrang, Bob Guccione Jr. at Spin. What, you pissed off because your dad gets more f***y than you? F*** you. Suck my f***ing You be ripping off the f***ing kids while they be paying their hard-earned money to read about the bands they want to know about. Printing lines, starting controversy. You want to antagonize me? Antagonize me, mother Get in the ring, mother And I'll kick your bitchy little ass
me, the, the funniest part of the story, though, is that Bob Guccione Jr. agreed to fight him and then Axel bowed out. Because yeah. <laughs> Guccione was actually a boxer for a while, I think, which yeah. Axel didn't know. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, I, I'm right in line with Robert on my favorite tracks from two. That's Breakdown, which he, which he uh, handled, and then Locomotive is just a great track uh intensity all the way this is one of the tracks where i think matt sorum actually fits very well uh with, with his with his style of drumming um and the very end is worth the wait too a little slowed down piano and guitar and uh and some really interesting fills and rhythm from from sorum uh locomotive is right near the center of the album and really holds things together Civil War, well, Locomotive's nine minutes long, so, I mean, that's an epic in and of itself, but uh, Civil War is one of my favorite uh, of the long epic songs on on these pair of, of albums as well. Uh, this is, what, a somewhat socially conscious Guns N' Roses, as much as they might um, try to be. You can't... Even that is what makes me laugh. It's like there was I the know. era where, like, bands that were so inappropriately suited to but these things tried to. to make social statements. You can't trust freedom when it's not in your hands, and look at the world we're killing, and look at the leaders oh we follow. Oh, my God. It's right? so funny. And the thing is, it would be completely intolerable if it were not for the fact that when it hits that chorus, it kills. Yeah. The, that is a fantastic chorus. It is a good song, despite all of these things. That change in, the change in dynamics, the kind of acoustic electric push and pull uh civil war is a is a really great l- way to lead off use your illusion too i i have to say though i think that there's a really weak stretch of this album uh, i know yesterday's was a single it's kind of catchy I, I don't like yesterday's all that much and then the cover of knocking on heaven's door and shotgun blues and get in the ring that's are four tracks in a row i think are subpar and they're right at the front of the album which, which brings it down a bit. Um, you Could Be Mine is a very fine track. Um, and then Don't Cry, which which I think Jeff mentioned. We haven't talked about it. I, I like Don't Cry quite a bit. This version of the second album, if I'm not wrong, it's the same music on both both discs, both exactly. albums. Basically, but, I, I don't know if it's the same recording. It's certainly the same melody yeah. in every way. I don't think it's the same recording, though. And the lyrics, though, are a little darker on this on this two version, so I think they're a little better. Man, if you'd like Use Your Delusion, I guess you, shouldn't someone have to explain what the hell is going on with my world? 
I mean, you, are, is... you want to step into my world? It's a socio-psychotic <laughs> state of bliss, Scott. It, that's terrible, and it's an awful way to end. Uh, nearly three. Can you imagine sitting through three hours of Guns and Roses, getting to the end, and then you're, you're rewarded with my world? I mean, my <laughs> goodness, what a way to end things. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think that that lull toward the front end of the album hurts it. Although again, high points: breakdown, locomotive, civil war. Uh, still very good, uh, very good uh, songs. But that would close the Use Your Illusion era, excuse me, and lead us... Well, we should mention, too, that it's during the tour, right? Izzy Stradlin is there for the... Uh, for, for putting, he quits. He quits, he, I think, the day after, essentially. Like, right, just These albums are finally gone. released. So, like, they, they've been started... This is something I didn't even realize. Again, you go back, you do your research, you learn things you didn't know before. They had started the Use Your Illusion tour, like, half a year before Use Your Illusion came out. Right. Which is kind of like what they would end up doing with Chinese Democracy, where they started that tour, I think, like, <laughs> seven years before the album came out. And <laughs> they finally released it, again, on my birthday, September 17th, 91, and then he clocked out. Uh, so that was those were the last gigs they played, and that tour continued on. Apparently, it's the longest sustained rock tour in history. It went to 1993, so they played for almost you know more than two and a half years these dates on this tour. Um, and it was only in 1993 where they finally hung it up. Uh, they hopefully made some money about it. Uh, I think Stradlin even had to rejoin at one point as sort of a fill-in player on a salary because, like, the guy who they'd hired had broken his arm or something like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it just, again, tales of rock excess, you know, come from this tour. And uh, what happens next is, you know, Man, what is what are you gonna say about a footnote? You know, the spaghetti incident. This is an album of covers, an album of covers of Guns N' Roses' favorite kind of you know influences and in bands. Although it's kind of hard for me to imagine you know Slash really digging the Skyliners. <laughs> Somebody did. Somebody did, man. And you know, of course, they're the ones who wrote or originally released at least "Since I Don't Have You," which is the most famous song on this album. You know, uh, everyone's heard it. It's a fun cover. It's a novelty, you know? I think Ain't It Fun is actually pretty good. That was the other one that was released as a single. It's a Dead Boy song. And, and as much as the idea of listening to the GNR cover, bands that I've come to actually like much later in life, like the UK Subs or the New York Dolls, the Damned, or you know, uh, you know, Nazareth and Misfits and stuff like that, it's... Uh, I, I agree with most people when I say that, like, yeah, you know, what is this? This is just, you know, a fart in the wind. <laughs> it's a cute, it, it was for the longest time a curiously strange way for the biggest band on the planet to end their career. Right. And of course, for a long time, everyone thought this was the end. But does anybody else want to disagree with me and defend this as secretly Guns N' Roses' best album? I think they're a pretty bad cover band when you get down to it. <laughs> I don't like either of the covers on Use Your Illusion. I don't think that they are really effective at at, at sort of making the songs their own on um, the Spaghetti Incident. It just it doesn't sound like Guns N' Roses. It sounds like Guns N' Roses trying to ape the, the machinations of a, of a punk band or, or, or a glam band. So a lot of this doesn't work all that well. I think toward the end, Hair of a Dog, is kind of made for Guns N' Roses. It would be really hard for them to screw that up. And so they do that one well. Axel's vocals are pretty sharp. Yeah. 
And that last song, which what's it's, it's a it's a Steve Jones Sex Pistols uh, track that Steve Jones wrote called Black Leather. I think that's the best cover on the album because they actually do something with it and make it sound like their own, not like they're just kind of uh, you know covering and aping someone else's work. Slash is doing slash things with the guitars on Black Leather. I think that's the most effective song on on the Spaghetti Incident. But so many of the rest just uh, there's perfunctory performances. I I just don't that doesn't do much for me at all. Well, Robert, shock the world. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I agree. It, it just sort of um, I, I think most of this stuff was actually recorded or or they had at least started putting it together. You know, previously their songs that they had played before. It was just they sort of whipped together some covers and threw it threw it out. Uh, you know, kind of a, the same attitude that they took almost toward you know lies and, and re-releasing their their old material there. It's just you know Guns and Roses playing some other people's songs and that's all that needs to be said about it. <laughs> so who wants who wants to do? Uh, a, a yeoman's attempt at trying to explain what happens between the years 1993 and 2008. That is a solid, yes, 15 years. I can't even believe that that's true. 15 years between releases and the last release to date, I might point out, for Guns N' Roses. Chinese Democracy, a name that I have to admit, boy, that's a great joke. I don't know how where the name was 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 arrived at, uh, and at what point during this process that name came from. But I always thought it was a commentary on like you know this album will be released when Chinese <laughs> democracy happened. I, I, I thought that was the joke. <laughs> I don't know if that was what Axel intended, but uh, you know, hey, Scott, do you want to take a chance well, to, to summarize the legend, the legend yeah. of the, maybe the most infamous? Right up there with Smile in terms of unreleased albums until it actually ended up coming out. The thing is that, you know, you can go to Wikipedia and read a, a good review of everything that went into making this album. I think, I don't know if people forget, or and it goes back so long. I mean, when this started, Guns N' Roses were still a band. I mean, Slash was still there. Duff uh, was still there. Matt Sorum was still there. And this was, at the beginning, an effort, a band effort to, to make this album. And over the course of years, um, people became disillusioned. I mean, Duff, I think, was like, I got to make some money. I'm having a kid. This is ridiculous. Slash got fed up. Those guys left. I wrote down some of the names that had been associated with this album. I mean, look at the... the okay, Moby. At one point, Moby was brought in to produce Chinese Democracy. Didn't work out. <laughs> Roy Thomas Baker of Queen, which... Oh, had, that's the one that blows right? my mind the most. <laughs> right, Roy Thomas Baker was actually involved and convinced Axel to re-record everything. And so you had... That's another one of the re-recordings. More reason to hate that son of a... <laughs> <laughs> Paul Buckmaster, who did all the uh, orchestral arrangements for Elton John's best work, was involved with Chinese Democracy. Jimmy Iovine, uh, who was uh, head of the record label and, of course, produced... A a ton of great records in the in the 80s was involved. Bob Ezrin, who did all of Alice Cooper's best stuff, was involved. And The Wall from Pink Floyd. Right. And The Wall, the yes, was involved at one point. But none of those guys were involved at the end. <laughs> at the end, it was all Axel. I mean, years spent recording, re-recording, mixing, remixing, cycling through multiple drummers, cycling through multiple guitarists, including uh, the the famous uh, or infamous Buckethead. Um, songs were... Wait, 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 stop. I, I know I interrupt too much, but we have to just talk for a second about Buckethead. Because we're never going to mention Buckethead on any other episode of Political Beats. I think it's fair to say, right? I, I Buck- can't imagine. 
Buckethead, a guitarist, a heavy metal hard rock guitarist who literally plays wearing a Michael Myers mask with a bucket on his head, a, a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken large bucket on his head. That's his shtick. He wears a bucket. He wears it on his head. And by the way, he's all over this album, as we're going to hear. And uh, he may be the most bizarre human being to ever play lead guitar on hard rock albums. But he's pretty good. Do you want to tell the story? Did you read the story about what they did for him in studio? Do you want to share yeah, the story? Yeah, it was actually I read it on, on our friend Steve Hyden, who uh, wrote a great piece years ago for Grantland, yes. R.I.P. Uh, about Chinese democracy, saying like you know, talking about like you know, bands and artists who disappear for like you know, years and then come out with comeback albums. How Chinese democracy kind of set the template for them, and he has a whole host of like these <clears throat> really funny anecdotes from the Chinese democracy sessions. And one of them is that Buckethead apparently, who's a weird as you might imagine a man who plays with a bucket <laughs> on his head would be was having some some sort of like psychological issues performing in the studio and he demanded that axel set up a fake chicken coop for him mm-hmm. uh with chicken fence like a little fence so he would be like in the barnyard <laughs> <laughs> as he's in the studio recording his tracks and boy you know what i was actually touched i was touched by the fact that axel was like you know what <laughs> Boy, you know, buddy, if that's what you need, we're going to make it work for you. (laughs) It's just one of these stories. And again, you know, I weep for the fact that these kind of rock tales, we're not going to get them anymore, are we? Did, Did you get the second part of that story, though? No, what okay, was the okay. So the, I, I don't recall where I read this, uh, but of course, if I read it somewhere, it must be true. So I, again, the story goes that Axel's uh, dog got loose in the studio and and went into the chicken coop and uh and and defecated and so the normal person would clean it up oh no buckethead said no i like the scent nobody touched that and so for three days they recorded buckethead guitar parts with dog poop in the chicken coop and it began to absolutely you know well, rot and just stink up the entire joint. And so when Buckethead was gone, one of the techs or engineers went in and, and cleaned it up and he completely flipped out when he found out because someone had removed the dog feces from his chicken coop. And so that, that's the second part of that story, allegedly, reportedly. And you would be shocked uh, at the kind of album that results from 15 years of, <laughs> of writing, rewriting, recording. Uh, you would think that, first of all, uh, this this is an album that, that was, I remember it well. Even I had st- long since stopped caring about Guns N' Roses. I had grown up. I had kissed my first girl. I had gone to college. I had, you know, you know lost my virginity, become an adult, took a job, took a different job cycled through everything gone to law school graduated from law school <laughs> before chinese democracy came out i had long since ceased caring about this band and i figured just like everyone else that it was a punchline it would never be released um and dr pepper in fact they did a promotion in 2008 yeah. this is another one of these famous stories where they said that like you know what if chinese democracy is actually released in 2008 we'll we will buy a free dr pepper for every single person in the united states they were so confident that it would never happen oh did they have to eat their work and it's so weird because it's it's as if axel was waiting for the offer because it, i mean i'm thinking back in memory but it was only like it was like two weeks later that all right it's coming out this year 
Exactly. Exactly. Maxwell had that thing ready to go for half a decade. You just got to think he had it ready to go. I'm just waiting for my free pop. So they spend like $13 million on this record. At one point, Geffen says, look, we're done spending money. It's now on Axel to spend whatever he wants to finish up and deliver the album. And he does. And I want to bring Robert back in here because at least I know for the two of us, for Jeff and, and, and for me, listening to it before this podcast was the first time we had given front to back listens to Chinese democracies. So we have a very fresh ear on this. Robert's the big Guns N' Roses fan. What was it, <laughs> what was it like <laughs> to find out this thing was released? And then what did you think when you heard it? Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, basically the entire time I was a Guns and Big Guns and Roses fan is basically they were inactive. Um, so I was really excited for this to come out. Um, and I had been excited for a long time because uh, back when I was in high school, actually, around 2000 or so, they'd, they'd put out a single from the album called Oh My God. Um, and and the, the release was, of course, imminent at the time. Um, and then it just never came out. And that song ended up not being on it. Um, so I was really curious to see where they went from that because uh when a lot of the band left, um, he had been in this sort of mode. Axel had been planning to do sort of uh, almost like a Nine Inch Nails inspired thing. And, and Oh My God was a little bit in that industrial sort of vein. And by 2008, that's not really in anymore. So I was curious how much that was going to, to hold over. Um, and what, what we ended up getting is sort of a, it's sort of an attempt to follow the Use Your Illusion albums more, I think, because it has a lot of those sort of longer and drawn out songs. Um it, but it, it was underwhelming. It was it was as if he he took a group of songs that were just okay and then spent you know 15 years making every sure every note was exactly where he wanted it. And that's what what sort of disappointed me about it. Um, but that that said, there are some real highlights on it. I, I'm a big fan of Better, and I'm a really big fan of Street of Dreams, just sort of a, almost like the sequel to November Rain. I think this is a great album, and I'm shocked. I'm shocked because, again, as I said, this has been a punchline for years for me. Never heard it. Of course, I knew, I'd known all the other albums. I had owned every single GNR album up through the Spaghetti Incident because they were parts of my, like, sort of, you know, literally before I even went to high school childhood. Um, and so much time had passed. And so when I finally said, oh, we're doing GNR, I, I guess I got to go listen to this thing. Um, and I expected it to be just a disaster. But, you know, you can't fake it. You got to go listen to the albums. Yeah, obviously, we're going to talk about it. And I was stunned. This is a great record. This is a really good record. This is not in any way an innovative record. This is not a record that breaks any new ground. This is a record that, because of the fact that it took 15 flipping years to make, sounds comically kind of behind the times and like the ways that it sort of expands on Guns N' Roses' original sound uh, would have been really fresh and current in 1997. <laughs> but, 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 and maybe even in 2002, let's just say like, oh yeah, it comes out in 2002. People are reminded of why they loved Guns N' Roses a decade ago. That had been great. It would have been a great comeback album. In 2008, it just felt 
I got to you know, you're listening to it in 2018, another decade on, you can just hear this stuff and he's like, well, there's nothing new here sonically. But the songs are good, man. I, I listened to the first 11 songs on this record. All of them are long and I don't hear a single one that's bad. I think If the World is generic, but I like Chinese Democracy, the title track. It opens the song. I like Shackler's Revenge. Street of Dreams is like this, you know, not only a November Rainish kind of a ballad. I really love, though, that middle run from Catcher in the Rye through Scraped and through a name that I'm going to sound like an idiot just saying it. It's Riyadh and the Bedouins. This is the yeah. best song on Chinese it's democracy. It's a good one, yeah. I got no idea what it's about, man. I got no idea what it's about. I don't know why Bedouins, why Northern African um, Berber uh, you know, tribes appear in a Guns N' Roses song, but that is a great song with great guitar modulations in the chorus, with great chord changes. <laughs> had it in them i love sorry and irs madagascar is probably the weakest song on this album um but i am i'm just surprised you know this is by no means revolutionary and i suppose you know steve hyden again you know made this point that, like you know people actually resented him for releasing chinese democracy after all because it was better as a punchline as, a, as an album that would never come out than the reality of it ever could be uh, but the reality of it is if you just sort of close your eyes and you don't think to yourself, well, okay, this album took, you know, a decade and a half to come out and, and came out long after anybody had ceased giving a rip about Guns N' Roses, you would have thought, this is a great follow-up to Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, and it might be actually better than either of them. So I will start by quoting from Chuck Klosterman's review, which is very good. And I just want to make sure I credit him. At the start, he says, reviewing this album is like reviewing a unicorn. Who knew it was going to exist? What do you, <laughs> what do you compare it to? Is it, shouldn't you just be amazed that it actually is out there? Um, and, and later he says, you know, the one thing about Chinese democracy is it's as if Axel believes that Everything Guns N' Roses can do must be on every track. So it's got to be a little loud and a little soft and some piano and some guitar. And every dynamic that Guns N' Roses can do must be in every song. And there is some, some truth to that. But this is, it's not a disaster. And it's not a, you know, five-star, 10 out of 10 kind of album. It's somewhere in between with some high points. It's far better than I thought that Axel could do on his own because, quite frankly... You know, Izzy wrote so many of those early songs that were successful and great, and, 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 and Duff did, did some too, and Slash was involved, and this is, you know, this is a lot of Axel. Some, some input from the guys who were playing along with them, but it's a lot of Axel. And he does okay. I mean, really. Uh, I, I actually, I don't like the title track all that much, and I don't like Shackler's Revenge, which is track two, so I, I think there's two missteps to start the album. But then there's a stretch of really interesting stuff. Better... Better is a great song. Robert mentioned 
Better is a really good song. It sounds like, uh, I don't mean to damn with faint praise, it sounds like Linkin Park, but done a little better with a with a better ear toward toward some of the more melodic portions. Uh, also, it's like a conscious modernization of their sound and yes, style. Yes, absolutely. With that opening, which is not a GNR thing, up, I mean, hadn't been at least up until that point. Yeah, but great song. Very memorable melody. There's a great guitar solo late, which I assume is Buckethead, perhaps surrounded by dog feces. I, I don't know. Um, the guitar parts on the bridge are very... It's a, just a very well-constructed, catchy uh, solo. Yes, the production is all over the place in terms of what things sound like. There's a little, like what, there's a little industrial, there's a little new metal. This is totally the opposite of the Slash guitar song uh, sound. There is some shredding, so to speak, on this album. Uh, there is a, a, some how many notes can you play in, in, in 30 seconds on this album. Uh, Street of Dreams is a very solid song. Might be closest to like the old GNR song. A very slashy guitar feel to it after I said there's non-slashy guitar stuff all over the place. Uh, if the World has a kind of a slinky groove. It's almost like electronic funky stuff in a flamenco guitar from from Buckethead. Axel sounds really sharp. His, By the way, his vocals on this album sound far better than they have any right to based on the amount of time that went into it and the fact that he's what 47 by the time well, based this... on any of the live performances yes. that you would see like popping up on youtube in fact there's like a whole subgenre of like joke youtube videos making fun of axel's horrible voice <laughs> <laughs> like when his live performance he sounds like he sounds like bob dylan <laughs> times live you're like, and you're like oh man this is gonna suck and then you hear the album and He's got it. He's got it. Yeah, you He's got Riyadh and the ben uh, Bedouins is, yeah, might be the best. I think Better is probably a better track, no pun intended, but that that's a really fine track. Sorry's okay. Now, yeah, there's some fill. There's some stuff that doesn't quite work. There's some song. Madagascar's not a great song. But there are far more high points on this album than I had, I, I would have bet there would be when I went in to listen to it. And it's, um, I, I don't know if it points the way to a future, though, right? Because so much of what is done here is sort of rooted in, in taking Guns N' Roses from what they were into that next round of sort of rock metal sound, but then that sort of sort of isolated in amber from from 1997 to 2000 or so. I'm not sure it points a way forward. I don't even know if those guys want to make new music anymore. They just made a half a, if I saw the numbers right, I thought half a billion dollars gross 
on this uh, not in this lifetime tour. They can just tour the rest of their lives and be fine, I would imagine. But well, the way I, the way I think about it is that you know the the span of time from Appetite from for Destruction from to the Use Your Illusion records was like what six years. And so the span of time from the Use Your Illusion records to Chinese Democracy was like 15 years. So I've I've done my calculations and I've done my math, and that tells me that the follow-up to Chinese Democracy will be coming out in 2038. I'm already I've got my pre-order in. You never know. Set the alert on your Google Calendar right now to be aware for the next release. Uh, so that's Chinese Democracy. That's the last Guns N' Roses album. We should spend at least a little time, and I, I admit I have not heard a lot of the uh, the work done outside of the band by some of the members. So you've got uh, Slash's Snake Pit, you've got Velvet Revolver, which included Duff, and also Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots. You've got uh, Izzy Stradlin and the, and the Juju Hounds and his solo work. Uh, Robert, you're, you're the most likely among the three of us to have heard some of this stuff. I heard some Velvet Revolver, which sounds fine. My take is basically it's not as good as Guns N' Roses and it's not as good as Stone Temple Pilots, say for maybe a song or two. But what, what, what do you think about some of the stuff the guys have done outside the band? Sure, I can give a, a quick overview of that. Um, probably my single biggest piece of advice to somebody who's a Guns N' Roses fan but hasn't strayed outside of that too much is to check out the Slash's Snake Pit album that he put out in 95. It's called It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. Um, he was actually still a member of Guns N' Roses when he did that. He had some riffs kicking along and things weren't going so great um, with the band. Um, you know, they weren't sure what, what was going to happen. You know, Axel wants to make you know a Nine Inch Nails album. So he so he puts out this album with this guy on vocals named Eric Dover. If you look at his Wikipedia page, he's been in a few bands you probably never heard of. Comes out of nowhere, but he just did a fantastic job with this album. Um, both both Slash and Dover um, just has this really sort of gritty rock voice, and, and they put together like a, a, a bunch of songs that sound that have the same vibe as Guns N' Roses, but have a different singer on them who is who is not trying to be Axel, who's doing his own thing. Um, and and I just love you know, especially the first trio of, of songs on it. Neither can I, Dime Store Rock, and Beggars and Hangers On. Just a just a really great 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 guitar work, great songwriting. I, I, I'm a really good fan of that one. After that, he, he put out another solo album with a different singer named Ain't Life Grand. Um, I was really excited um, when it came out in 2000. I bought it the day it came out, and then I listened to it about three times. It's uh, it, it just doesn't really do it for me. Um, a few of the songs are, are fairly catchy, but it's nothing um, nothing crucial. Um, I was actually a pretty big fan of Velvet Revolver during my college years. Um, I think they, it was an interesting combination. So they, they, they managed to sound different from either Stone Temple Pilots or um, Guns N' Roses. I'm a much bigger Guns N' Roses fan than a Stone Temple Pilots fan, so I might say that I like listening to Velvet Revolver better than, than STP. Um, but but I, I see if you're if you're a big fan of both bands, you probably won't think Velvet Revolver is is better than either of them. Um, 
and the, the other guy's solo work, I haven't really paid as much attention to. Um, I, I bought, I remember back in middle school, high school, um, I bought one of Izzy's solo albums. It's, it's not even, he's not even trying to be, you know, make that kind of music anymore. It was sort of a really laid back sort of record. And I, that was not what I was into. So I think I traded it in within a, a month or two after that. And then there've been, you know, Ad, Steven Adler has this thing, Adler's Appetite, Duff McKagan has that group loaded. Um, these are bands that you know you pull up on you know Spotify or Amazon Music and you listen to it once or twice and you're <laughs> you're good. So so there, there's my uh, my overview of the the post GNR careers of of the guys. But I mean, I'll admit I, I I know nothing about this topic. I was just a GNR man myself. So unless you know something, Scott, I'm done. <laughs> Before we get to our our albums and, and songs in a moment, I when we, when we tease that we were doing this episode we get reaction of course via at political underscore beats our our twitter account and there were a fair number of people who were saying you know most overrated band or you know not as important to uh, legacy is not as important things like that and I, I i kind of i kind of understand that i mean just based on how many albums right i mean really two albums in chinese democracy although the one you know user illusion is so massive how how should we interpret their legacy are they overrated did um did, did they influence people that came after them are they simply this this band that sort of bridged the the, the way from some of the hair and the excess of the 80s to the to the grunge era uh, i mean a lot of that sound was just blown out the door once nirvana and pearl jam and that's that kind of hit the scene how should we remember guns and roses i think they were not overrated but it's also really important and and it was maybe sad in a way to note that they didn't have a lot of influence on people. And the reason they didn't have a lot of influence on people was that they were the end of a trend and not the, the, the middle or beginning of one. That music has changed so radically. Not only music, but the music industry as well has just shifted so radically back from kind of a harder rock or even an album based on the financial level, economic level, an album based uh, industry to a singles based industry um, original songwriters are out professional songwriters are in you know the hit making stuff that sounds very similar this is the kind of world where that guitar rock doesn't have a place you know and Guns N' Roses ended up being the end of a line and not the, the recreation or the beginning of one here's the here's truth uh, do you see people covering Guns N' Roses songs ever can you think of any GNR song that has been covered that you think, well, that's a well-known cover, even if it's one you don't like? Uh, can you think of a famous cover? No. And it's not just because, well, okay, those songs are hard to sing. It's hard to do an axle voice. There used to be a whole plethora of, of, of rock vocalists who could sing like that. The Robert Plant style, um, the, the Axl Rose style, that used to be an entire rich vein of rock singing. Mm -hmm. It's gone now. It doesn't yep. exist anymore. So I, I find it to be fair to say that Guns N' Roses were a major band. They were an important band. They were a great band uh, for all of their flaws, and maybe even in some ways because of their flaws, because I really love the hilarity of their self-indulgence. It's a great rock story. It's a great narrative. But no, they're not an influential band, not to my mind at least. That, that sounds right to me. Um, I... To me, what's it, it sort of ties in with just sort of the decline of the guitar rock in general. I mean, you you don't see bands like this anymore because we're we're in kind of I think a drought in terms of heavy music, um, and it's frustrating for me because I've been into rock and metal my whole life, um, and 
you know, the last time anybody had a fresh, fresh idea was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, probably. I was in high school when New Metal came out. So I will admit that I saw Korn in concert more than once. Um, and, and once in a while, I still put on the old Korn albums. And, and it was a new idea that you know, the, you're tuning the guitars really low, bringing in a lot more hip hop influence. Um, it wasn't it, it maybe deserved to be a band or two rather than an entire genre of music um but it, but it was at least something different um and when i got to college you know there were sort of somewhat of a development you had those new wave of american heavy metal bands like shadows fall um sort of like a more amped up metallica kind of sound and you had you know the, the screamo bands like thursday um that doesn't have to be your favorite kind of music but it was at least something different um and and i've been you know trying you know trying to stay young i'm, I'm 34 and fat now um so i gotta try to stay young <laughs> and trying to find you know what what cool stuff is happening now and there, there just isn't a lot of it that you know, every time i try to hear one of these new heavy bands it just sounds like something that you know came out 20 30 years ago and, and was done better back then and maybe that's just me being old and grouchy and there's a, a whole world of great metal bands i've never heard of but um but so that, that's that that to me isn't so much a slam on guns and roses as a slam on the the decline of the genre they, there was nobody to influence because the whole genre kind of died all right our look at Guns and Roses here on Political Beats with Robert Verbruggen and, of course, Jeff Blair, my tag team partner. We come to the point of the episode where we dig into the catalog and we give you, the listener, two albums that you really should own and five songs from our band that you have to hear. And as always, our guest goes first. So, Robert, the floor is yours, your albums and, and songs. All right. Now, my albums are, of course, Use Your Illusion 2 and uh, Appetite for Destruction. Um for, if I'm picking the top five songs, um, I'll kind of go in chronological order here. Um, I, I love Mr. Brownstone. I was a, a guitar player, you know, kind of high school and college. I don't play as much as I used to, but that, that guitar riff is just unstoppable. It's, a, it's just an incredible guitar song that you, you really have to hear. And even if you're not into into guitar, it, it's just it's just something really cool. Um, two, I'm a, a big fan of Rocket Queen. Um, I, I especially like the sort of twist where it gets sort of like uh, – sensitive toward the end after all the um <laughs> sort of grimy and, and gross stuff at the, toward the beginning um I, I don't know what possessed them to do that but somehow it somehow it really works um i have to pick civil war for the reason that I, i've said a couple of times already it was, it was the, this was the song that got me into guns and roses um and that's to pick locomotive love locomotive great song you know i think we covered what, what's so great about it and uh just because I have to after the beating it took earlier, I'm going to go ahead and pick Coma because it's an <laughs> epic song that, that you can find ridiculous if you want. But um, I, I think it really does work. And I, I, I've loved that song since I was in you know middle school or high school whenever I was whenever I was finally allowed to, to have the F word songs. <laughs> um, that's been one of my uh, one of my favorite songs. Uh, all right. So uh, my two albums, certainly Appetite for Destruction and um, and, and Use Your Illusion one. I think is the superior of those two releases. Uh, Song-wise from Appetite, uh, Welcome to the Jungle, I still think is probably the band's finest, finest moment from start to finish. The first track on the first album is virtually flawless. Uh, so it's in, you know, whatever collection you want to say represents the band, it's got to be there. Mr. Brownstone, yeah, from the first album too, just amazing guitar work from both Izzy and Slash, driving beat. Uh, from the Use Your Illusion discs, uh, Bad Obsession, and uh, and Locomotive, which uh, which was on Robert's list. And this last track, I'm going back and forth a little bit. I haven't taken any of the more ballady type songs, and I don't think I will. I it is worth it just to give you an idea. 
idea of what Chinese democracy was all about to go track down better. Uh, it, it's almost certainly the most melodic uh, and, and, you know, if we were in a different age, the most commercial sounding song that might have, you know, 10 years earlier been a, a radio hit. It was not at the time, but I, I think it's probably the best song on Chinese democracy. And again, worth a listen to hear what Axel did with the band during those years. And if just to prove that Chinese democracy was not a total, um, you know, fiasco. Perhaps the recording was, but what happened at the end, it was okay. It was okay. Jeff, to you. I think Chinese Democracy was better than okay. My two albums, uh, the first one obviously is Appetite. Uh, nothing more needs to be said. I mean, it's just obviously their greatest record. Uh, but the second pick that I'm going to make is Chinese Democracy, their first album, and one imagines their last album. Chinese Democracy is, again, I'm, an album that I'm just shocked I'm shocked at the fact that it is as good as it is, that it is coherent sounding as it is, that Axel sounds as good as he does, that that Buckethead sitting in his his poop stained chicken (laughs) comes up with his great music as he does on guitar. He's just a really fantastic guitarist. Um, This is the album that if you just thought it was a punchline and you you never picked it up because you thought, well, yeah, GNR, they were great back when I was a kid. But, you know, come on, who wants to hear this now? Pick it up. Imagine, tell yourself that it came out in 1995 and you're going to be thrilled with it because I think it's a really great record. It has a lot of the flaws that other GNR records have. It's too long. It's like 72 minutes long. These guys just, Axel, it's it's, got to be Axel. Guy could not edit himself. But, it's got all the virtues that you also normally associate with Guns N' Roses. Really big anthemic hooks, big guitar solos, big ballads. It's good. So my five songs, um, gosh, this is hard. I tried to sort of go light on Appetite because everybody owns it already. But if I'm going to pick one, it's Night Train. Um, Night Train is, is a song they opened with in their concerts for a reason. All right. This is just one of the great rushing, pushing riffs, rhythm section performances of Guns N' Roses' career. And, you know, the older I get and the more I drink, the more I appreciate the fact that it was written about gutter swill. Um, Rednecks go to hell. Yeah, that's what I'm going to call it. Rednecks go to hell. I still love it. Opening song, it's right next door to hell. Opening song on Use Your Illusion 1, fantastic hard rock salvo that opens and kind of makes you think for a second that, boy, you know, maybe these double albums are going to be a little less self-indulgent than than they actually ended up being. Um, The other song I'll pick from Use Your Illusion 1 is an obvious one, but, you know, someone has to mention it. It's November Rain. Yeah, it's a flabby, sodden, hair metal ballad. But you know what? It still gets by, and it represents all that I think is best, silliest, and most majestically fun and dumb about that era musically. I love it, and I love the video. If you haven't seen the November Rain video, then, you know, what are you doing listening to this show? Pause and go watch it on YouTube. Locomotive off of User Illusion 2. Tellingly, all three of us cited this song as one of our favorites. Best song on that record, one of the best five songs they ever did. And then the last one I'll mention is, of all things, Read and the Bedouins from uh, Chinese Democracy. There are a lot of songs I could have cited here. Better is great. I really like the opening title track. I really like, um, you know, I could name half the songs. Sorry is a great song. But the one that really jumps out at me is Read and the Bedouins. I, I think there's a really clever guitar um approach to that song i really love the chord changes in it i just love the way that that axel surprised me 
It's like, I didn't think he had that in him. I didn't think he had that song construction in him. Um, makes me wonder if it was one of the other guys he was working with that helped him out with it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, those are my top five songs from GNR. And I got to say that there are very few bands that we've done on Political Beats that have felt quite as much of a almost you know psychedelic lsd flashback revisiting of my childhood as guns and roses has been you know this has been an experience where i'm not just talking about music but i am reliving like some of my first and truly most formative years musically it's been a real trip fun times indeed yes and we all have stories to share about parents trying to limit our access to guns and roses uh all right this has been our Political Beats look at Guns and Roses. We thank our guest for today's show, Robert Verbruggen. You can find him on Twitter, at R.A. Verbruggen. He's the Deputy Managing Editor of National Review Online. Of course, you can find him at nationalreview.com. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, my tag team partner, Jeff Blair, at SOTRXCD on uh, Twitter. Go back and, and you know listen to more of the uh, Appetite album, perhaps. A pleasure as always. And uh, my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, subscribe to our feeds for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews if you would, please. You can find us on Twitter as well at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.